Hi, this is Stephen Sherry for Radio Spectrum. For some years and still today, there's been a quiet but profound schism among political strategists. There are those who favor modern methods and modern media, mass mailings, robocalling, television advertising, and increasingly social media advertising. On the other hand, are those, including my guest today, who not only see a value in traditional person-to-person messaging, but see it as, frequently, the better bang for the campaign buck. Just last week, the Attorney General of Michigan, a state that has been a battleground not just for electoral delegates, but this methodological dispute, announced that two political operatives were charged with felonies in connection with robocalls that made a number of false claims about the risks of voting by mail in an apparent attempt to discourage residents of Detroit. And last week as well, the Biden campaign announced a complete turnaround on the question of door-to-door canvassing, perhaps the gold standard of person-to-person political campaigning. Are they perhaps afraid of Democratic standard bearers making the same mistake twice? In the endless postmortem of the 2016 presidential election, an article in Politico argued that the Clinton campaign was too data-driven and model-driven and refused local requests, especially in Michigan, for boots-on-the-ground support. It quoted a longtime political hand in Michigan as describing, quote, months of failed attempts to get attention to the collapse she was watching unfold in slow motion among women and African-American millennials. I confess I saw something of that phenomenon on a recent Saturday. I'm living in Pittsburgh these days, and in the morning, I worked a Pennsylvania-based phone bank for my preferred political party. One of my first calls was to someone in the Philadelphia area who told me he had already made his absentee ballot request and asked while he had me on the phone when his ballot would come. There used to be someone around here, I forget what you call her, but someone I could ask stuff of. That was, for me, strike one. In another call to a man in the Erie area, the conversation turned to yard signs. He said he would like to put one out, but had no idea where to get it. Strike two. In the late afternoon, two of us went to a neighborhood near us to put out door hangers, and if we saw someone face-to-face, we would ask if they wanted a yard sign. One fellow said he would. We were supposed to get one, he told us. When he saw we had a stack of them in our car, he sheepishly added, he was supposed to get two, in fact, one for a friend. That was my third indication in one day that there was a lack of political party involvement at the very local level, three different parts of what could well be the most critical swing state of the 2020 presidential election. When I strung these three moments together over a beer, my partner immediately thought of a book she owned, Get Out the Vote, now in its fourth edition. Its authors, Donald Green and Alan Gerber, argue that political consultants and campaign managers have underappreciated boots-on-the-ground canvassing in person and on the phone in favor of less personal, more easily scaled methods, radio and TV advertising, robocalling, mass mailings, and the like. Of particular interest, they base their case with real data on experimental research. The first edition of their book described a few dozen such experiments. Their new edition, they say, summarizes hundreds. One of those authors is Donald Green, a political scientist at Columbia University focusing on such issues as voting behavior and partisanship, and most importantly, methodologies for studying politics and elections. His teaching career started at Yale, where he directed its Institution for Social and Policy Studies. He joins us via Skype. 
Don, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Modern campaigns can employ an army of advisors, consultants, direct mail specialists, phone bank vendors, and on and on. You say that much of the advice candidates get from these professionals comes from war stories and not evidence. Robocalls seem to be one example of that. A study of a 2006 Texas primary found that 65,000 calls for one candidate increased his vote share by about two votes. Yes, the robocalls have an almost perfect record of never working in randomized trials. Uh, These are trials in which we randomly assign some voters to get a robocall and others not and allow the campaign to give it its best shot with the best possible robocall. And then at the end of the uh, election, we look at voter turnout records to see who voted. And in that particular case, the results were rather dismal. But not just in that case. I think that there have been more than 10 such large-scale experiments, and it's hard to think of an instance in which they've performed well. The two robocallers in Michigan allegedly made 12,000 calls into Detroit, which is majority black, 85,000 calls in total to there and similar areas in other cities. According to a report in the Associated Press, the calls falsely claimed that voting by mail would result in personal information going into databases that will be used by police to resolve old warrants, credit card companies to collect debts, and federal officials to track mandatory vaccines. It quoted the calls as saying, don't be finessed into giving your private information to the man. Beware of vote by mail. You've studied plenty of affirmative campaigns, that is, attempts to increase voter participation. Do you have any thoughts about this negative robocalling? Well, it certainly seems like a clear case of an attempt at voter suppression to try to scare people away from from voting. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. You know, I haven't heard the call. I'd be curious to know something about the voiceover that was used. But let's suppose that it seemed credible. You know, the question is whether people take it seriously enough or whether they question the content, maybe talking to others in in ways that undercut its effectiveness. But if robocalls seldom work, it's probably because people just don't notice them. I'm not sure whether this one would potentially work because it would get somebody's notice. At any rate, we don't know how effective it would be. I suspect not terribly effective, but probably effective enough to to be concerning. Yeah, it was uh, noticed enough that complaints about it filtered up to the uh, state attorney general, but uh, that doesn't give us any quantitative data. For decades, campaigns have spent a lot of their money on television advertising, and it can influence strategy. To take just one example, there's a debate among Democrats about whether their candidate should invest in Texas because there's so many big media markets. It's a very expensive state to contest. What does the experimental data tell us about television? Experiments on television are relatively rare. The one that I'm most familiar with is one that actually I helped uh, conduct with my three co-authors back when we were studying the Texans for Rick Perry campaign in 2006. There, we randomly assigned 18 of the 20 media markets in Texas to receive varying amounts of TV advertising and various timing, uh, at which point it would be rolled out. And we conducted daily tracking polls to see the extent to which public opinion moved as ads rolled out in various media markets. And what we found was there was some effect of Rick Perry's advertising campaign, but it subsided very quickly. Only a few days uh, passed before it was essentially gone without a trace, which means that one can burn quite a lot of money for a a relatively evanescent effect in terms of the the campaign. I I really don't think that there's, there's much evidence that 
the very, very large amounts of money that are spent on television in the context of a presidential campaign have any lasting effect. And and so it's really an open question as to whether, say, the $300 million that the Clinton campaign spent in 2016 would have been better spent or at least as well spent on the ground. In contrast to war stories, you and your colleagues uh, conduct true randomized experiments. Uh, maybe you could say a little bit more about how hard that is to do in the middle of an election. Yes, it's a it's a juggling act for sure. The idea is in if we wanted to study, for example, the effects of direct mail on voter turnout, one would randomly assign uh, large lists of registered voters, some to get the mail, some to be left alone. And then we'd use the fact that voting is a public record in the United States and a few other countries as well to gauge voter turnout after the election is over. This is often uh, unsatisfactory for campaigns that want to know the answer ahead of time, but unfortunately have no, no good way of answering the question before people actually cast their ballots. And so this is something that has been done in increasing numbers since 1998. And um, now hundreds of, of those trials have been done on everything ranging from radio, robocalls, TV, direct mail, phone calls, social media, et cetera, et cetera. One thing you would expect campaign professionals to have data on is cost effectiveness, but apparently they don't. Uh, but you do. You've found, for example, that you can generate the same 200 votes with a quarter of a million robocalls, 38,000 mailers, or 2,500 door-to-door conversations. Yes, we try to not only gauge the effects of the intervention through randomized trials, but also try to, you know, figure out what that amounts to in terms of dollars per vote. And, you know, these kinds of calculations are always going to be context dependent because some campaigns are able to rely on inexpensive people power. They inspire volunteers in vast numbers. And so in some sense, the costs that we estimate could be greatly overstated for uh, the kinds of boots on the ground canvassing that are typical of presidential elections in battleground states. Nevertheless, I think that it is interesting to note that even with relatively cautious calculations to the effect that people are getting $16 an hour for canvassing, canvassing still equips itself rather well in terms of its comparisons to other campaign tactics. Now, that's just for turnout, uh, not votes for one candidate instead of another. A, a nonpartisan good government group might be interested in turnout for its own sake, but a campaign wants a higher turnout of its own voters. How does it make that leap? Well, typically what they do is rely on uh, voter files and augmented voter files, which is, say, voter files that have had other information about people appended to them in order to, to make an educated guess about which people on the voter file are likely to be supportive of their own campaign. So Biden supporters have been micro-targeted and so have Trump supporters and so on and so forth based on their their history of donating to campaigns or signing petitions or showing up in party primaries. And that makes the job of the uh, campaign much easier because instead of trying to persuade people or win them over from the other side, they're trying to bring a bigger army to the battlefield uh, by building up enthusiasm and mobilizing their own core supporters. So the ideal for that kind of campaign is a person who is very strongly aligned with the candidate that is sponsoring the campaign, but has a low propensity of voting. And so that that kind of person is really perfect for a mobilization campaign. And so that could also be done demographically. I mean, there are zip codes in Detroit that are, I don't know, 80% black. 
Yes, there there are lots of ways of doing this based on aggregates. Now, you often don't have to rely on aggregates because you typically have information about each person. But if you were to to basically do it, say, precinct by precinct, you could use as proxies for the left, percentage African-American or proxies for the for the right, demographics that are associated with Trump voting. So it's possible to do it, but it's probably not state of the art. You mentioned door-to-door canvassing. It increases turnout, but perhaps counterintuitively, apparently it doesn't matter much whether it's a close contest or a likely blowout, and it doesn't matter what the canvasser's message is. Yes, this is one of the most interesting things, actually, about studying canvassing and other kinds of tactics experimentally. It appears that some of the most important communication at the door is nonverbal. You know, you're, you show up at my door and I wonder what you're up to. Are you trying to sell me something, trying to, you know, make your way in here? I figure, oh, you know, actually, you're just having a pleasant conversation. You're a person like me. You're, you're taking your time out to um, encourage me to vote. Well, that sounds okay. And I think that that message is probably the thing that sticks with people, perhaps more than the, the details of what you're, you're trying to say to me about, about the, the campaign or the particularities about why I should vote. Should I vote because it's my civic duty or should I vote because I need to stand up in solidarity with my community? Those kinds of nuances don't seem to matter as much as we we might suppose. So it seems reminiscent of what the sociologists would call a Hawthorne effect. Some of it is reminiscent of a Hawthorne effect. The Hawthorne effect is basically, you know, we increase our productivity when we're being watched. And so there is some some sense in which um, being monitored, being encouraged by another person makes us feel as though we, we've got to give a bit more effort. So there's a bit of that. But I think partly what's going on is voting is a social activity. And just as you know, you're more likely to go to a, a party if you were invited uh, by person as opposed to by email, so too you're more likely to, to show up to vote if somebody makes an authentic, heartfelt appeal to you and encourages you to vote in person or you know, through something that's very much like in person, um, some, some, some gathering or some friend-to-friend communication, as opposed to something impersonal, like you get a, get a postcard. So without looking into the details of the Biden campaign flip-flop on door-to-door canvassing, your hunch would be that they're making the right move? Yes, I think so. I mean, putting putting aside the other kinds of normative concerns about whether people are at risk uh, if they get up and go out to canvas or they're putting others at risk, in terms of the raw politics of winning votes, it's a good idea in part because in 2018, they were able to field an enormous army of very committed activists in many of the closely contested congressional elections and you know, showed apparently very, very good good results. And, and the tactic itself is so well tested that if they can do it with appropriate PPE and, uh, and precautions, they could be quite effective. In your research, you found, by contrast, door hangers and yard signs, uh, the way I spent that Saturday afternoon I described have little or maybe even no utility. Well, yard signs might have some utility to candidates, especially down-ballot candidates who are trying to increase their vote share. It doesn't seem to have much of an effect on voter turnout. You know, maybe that's because the election is already in full swing and everybody knows that there's an election coming up and the yard sign isn't going to uh, convey any new information. But I do think that door hangers, you know, have have some residual effect. They're probably about as effective as a leaflet or a a mailer, which is not very effective, but maybe a, a, a smidge better than zero. You're more positive on phone banks, albeit with some qualifiers. 
Yes, I think that phone banking, especially authentic volunteer staffed phone banking can be uh, rather effective. You know, I think that if you have an unhurried conversation with someone who is basically like-minded, they're they're presumably targeted because they're someone who shares more or less your political outlook and you bring them around to explain to them why it's a important and historic election. Um, giving them any guidance you can about uh, when and how to vote, you can have an effect. It's not an enormous effect. It's something in the order of, say, three percentage points, so about you know one additional vote for every 30 calls you complete. But it's it's a substantial effect. And if you uh, are able to extract a commitment to vote from that person and uh, you were to be so bold as to call them back on the day before the election to make sure that they're making good on their pledge, then you can have an even bigger effect, in fact, a very large effect. So uh, I, I do think it can be effective. I also think that perfunctory, hurried calls by telemarketing operations are, are rather ineffective for a number of reasons, but especially the, the lack of authenticity. Let's turn to social media, particularly Facebook. You described one rather pointless Facebook campaign that ended up costing $474 per vote. Uh, But your book also describes a very successful experiment in friend-to-friend communication on Facebook. That's right. We have a number of randomized trials suggesting that encouragements to vote via Facebook ads or other kinds of Facebook media that are mass produced seem to be relatively limited in their effects. Perhaps the, the, the biggest, most intensive Facebook advertising campaign was its full day banner ads that ran all day long. I think it was the 2010 election and had precisely no effect, even though it was tested among 61 million people. More effective Uh, on Facebook were ads that showed you whether your Facebook friends had claimed to vote. Now, that didn't produce a a huge harvest of votes, but it increased turnout by about a third of a percentage point. So better than nothing. The big big effects that you see on Facebook and elsewhere are where uh, people are personalized way announcing the importance of the upcoming election and urging their Facebook friends, their their own social networks to vote. And that seems to be rather effective and indeed is part of a larger literature that's now basically coming to light, suggesting that even text messaging, though not a particularly personal form of communication, is quite effective when friends are texting other friends about the importance of registering and voting. Surprisingly effective. And and that, I think, opens up the door to a wide array of different theories about what can be done to increase voter turnout. It seems as though friend-to-friend communication or, say, neighbor-to-neighbor communication or communication among people who are co-workers or co-congregants, that could be the, the key to raising turnout by not, by not just, you know, one or two percentage points, but more like eight to ten. On this continuum of personal versus impersonal, Facebook groups, which are a new phenomenon, seem to lie somewhere in between. Some people are calling them toxic echo chambers, but they would seem to maybe be a godsend for political engagement. I would think so, as long as the communication within the, the groups is is authentic. If it's if it's automated, then probably not so much. But to the extent that the people in these groups have gotten to know each other or knew each other before they came into the group, then I think communication uh, among them or between them could be quite uh, compelling. Yeah, although, of course, that person that you think you're getting to know might be uh, some employee at the uh, in St. Petersburg, Russia, for the Internet Research Agency. Uh, Snapchat has been getting some attention these days in, in terms of political advertising. They've tried to be more transparent than Facebook, and they do some fact-checking of political advertising. Could it be a better platform for political ads or engagement? You know, I realize that I just don't know very much about the nuances of what they're they're doing. I'm not sure that I have enough information to say. 
Getting back to more analog activities, your book discusses events like rallies and processions, uh, but I didn't see anything about smaller coffee clutch style events where, say, you invite all your neighbors and friends to hear a local candidate speak. Uh, that would seem to combine the effectiveness of door-to-door canvassing with the Facebook friend-to-friend campaign, but maybe it's hard to study experimentally. That's right. I would be very, very optimistic about the effects of those kinds of small gatherings. And uh, it's not that we are skeptical about their effects. It's just, as you say, difficult to orchestrate a lot of experiments where people are basically opening their homes to friends. We, we need, to, <laughs> we need to, to rope in more volunteers to, to bring in their friends experimentally. The business model for some campaign professionals is to get paid relative to the amount of money that gets spent. Does that disincentivize the kind of person-to-person campaigning you generally favor? Yes. I I would say that one of the biggest limiting factors on person-to-person campaigning is that it's very difficult for campaign consultants to make serious money off of it. And that goes double for the kind of serious money that is poured into campaigns in the final weeks. And this huge amount of money tends to be donated within the last three weeks of an election. And by that point, it's very difficult to build the infrastructure necessary for large-scale canvassing or, or really any kind of retail-type politics. For that reason, the last-minute money tends to be dumped into digital ads and, and television advertising and, and lots and lots of robocalls. Don, as we record this, it's less than a week after the first 2020 presidential debate and uh, other events in the political news have maybe superseded the debate already. But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about it in terms of getting out the vote. Uh, Many people, I have to say myself included, uh, found the debate disappointing. Do you think it's possible for a debate to depress voter participation? I think it's possible. I think it's rather unlikely. To the extent that political science researchers have argued that uh, negative campaigning depresses turnout, tends to depress turnout among independent voters, uh, not so much among committed partisans who watch the debate and realize more more than ever that their opponent is aligned with the forces of evil. For independent voters, you know, they, they might say a plague on both your houses, I'm not going to participate. But I think that this particular election is one that is so intrinsically interesting that the usual enemy that you know, independents feel about partisan competition probably doesn't apply here. On a lighter note, an upcoming podcast episode for me uh, will be about video game culture, and it'll be with a professor of communications who writes her own video games for her classes. Your hobby turns out to be designing board games. Are they oriented toward political science? Is there any overlap of these passions? You know, it's strange that, that they really don't overlap at all. My my interest in board games goes back to when I was a, a child. I've always been uh, passionate about uh, abstract board games like uh, Chess or Go. And it was kind of an accident that I started to uh, design them myself. I did it actually when my fully adult uh, children were, were kids and we were playing with construction toys and began to see uh, possibilities for games in those construction toys. And, you know, one thing led to another and they were actually deployed in the world and marketed. And, you know, now I think that they, they're... Uh, Uh, kind of going the way of the dinosaur, but there's still a few dinosaurs like me who enjoy playing uh, on an actual physical board. Uh, Well, my girlfriend and I still play Racco, so maybe maybe that's not a completely lost cause. Uh, (laughs) Well, Don, I think in the U.S., everyone's thoughts won't be far from the election until the counting stops. Uh, Opinions and loyalties differ, but the one thing I think we can all agree on is that participation is essential for the health of the body politic. On behalf of all voters, let me thank you for all that your book has done toward that end. And uh, for myself and my listeners, thank you for joining me today. Very much appreciated. Thanks. 
We've been speaking with Donald Green, a political scientist and co-author of Get Out the Vote, which takes a data-driven look at maximizing efforts to get out the vote. This interview was recorded October 5th, 2020. Our thanks to Mike at Gotham Podcast Studio for audio engineering. Our music is by Chad Crouch. Radio Spectrum is brought to you by IEEE Spectrum, the member magazine of the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers. For Radio Spectrum, I'm Stephen Cherry.